John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, says, After these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread, that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And you can just glance into verse 15 there. It says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. God, we ask that you would give us understanding of this passage, uh, give your church your vision. Um, Holy Spirit, enlighten the eyes of our understanding so that we can see wondrous things from your law. John chapter 6, it's good to start a new chapter. Um, you guys know that, that kids, uh, kids these days, kids now don't know what a flannel graph is. And, you know, I had flannel graph in Sunday school growing up and vacation Bible school. And, and even as, as a kid, I knew that flannel graph was a pretty great way to tell a story. Because even as a kid in those classroom settings, you know, I, I could tell that, the, that the, the one that the teacher pulled up and, and voluntold, you know, to put the flannel graph pictures on the felt board was, was the problem kid. Um, that they that they had to give a job to so that he didn't you know bite someone or something like that you know you Sunday school teachers you weren't that subtle um, you know I could tell what you were doing and, and if you have these fond memories of getting picked as the kid that got to put the pieces on the board in your Sunday school class well now you know that you were the problem kid and they were really just trying to get you out of the way so that everyone else could learn but now uh, now kids don't know what flannel graph is anymore. It's obsolete technology. We do not use that in the classroom anymore. Maybe you do, and, and more power to you then. I think that's great. Uh, but if you look at a flannel graph set, and I assume they come in like a, a or used to come in, you know, a set with all the Bible stories, um, but you, you would find the more well-known stories. Like I have vivid uh, memories of David and Goliath. You'd find David and Goliath. You'd find Noah and and the ark, and all the animals, Daniel and the lion's den, and of course, all the greatest hits of Jesus's ministry, right? The Christmas story, sitting with the children, and of course, feeding the crowds with the loaves and fishes. That was something I remember being put up on the flannel graph. And now we, we're, we're coming to that story, and it's the third of Jesus's signs mentioned in the Gospel of John. And, and we know it's not actually the third miracle, 
that Jesus has done, that's evident in verse 2 right here. Uh, it's the third that is explicitly mentioned by John. He only mentions seven in detail. The first was water to wine. The second was healing the nobleman's son. And the third here is the multiplication of loaves and fishes. Now, this is a famous Bible story. You have to be a famous Bible story if you're going to end up in the flannel graph set. Um, it's one that, that shows up in children's Bibles. It's one that that is, um, you know, remembered by people who have very other, very few other Bible stories in their memory. Uh, and that really does mean that we need to pay extra close attention. Because when you encounter something that you think you know, you're less likely to learn anything. Now, this is a story that you've heard since you were children, probably. But it's repeated on purpose. This is one of the only miracles that shows up in all four gospel accounts. But when you see a story like this and you say, oh, I've already heard this one. I already know this one. Uh, you know, your mind might not be in the place to receive. So there's a proper attitude that has to be developed when you encounter a story like this that you think you already know. And we see in Psalm 119, uh, verse 18, it reads, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. And keep in mind that that prayer is for someone reading the law. That means they're reading Leviticus. <laughs> and, and then you have Jeremiah 33, verse 3, is where God himself, he, he says, Call to me and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. So when, when you, we see something... Uh, that we think we know, it's really best to go to it and say, Lord, open my eyes to show me things that I don't know. Because I know there's things that I'm, I, I could miss, and I know there's things that you still have to teach me. And, and I believe, as I believe every week when I, uh, when I get to preach, that the Lord has something for us in the passage that, he, that, that is being taught. One of the reasons this passage is so well known is because, as I mentioned, it's, it's the only miracle other than the resurrection that is included in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, that, that gives us lots of information, and we'll be going back and forth between the Gospels to fill in all the details, you know, because we're able to cross-reference and, and get a little bit of different perspectives. Um, but it should also just give us pause and have us realize, if this is in the Bible four times, it's probably worth listening to. So let's just read these first four verses again, which provide us with our context. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And we'll just pause there. Um, the time and the place is given to us. This happens around Passover. That means uh, it's springtime. This happens at, at Galilee. So it's a nice day at the, at the seaside, uh, at a big lake. There's, there's nice weather. Everyone can have church outdoors. Um, so it, it sets a nice scene. Uh, but Passover, of course, has meaning. Passover was part of the Exodus. Uh, that, that's the going out of Egypt. And now, in this story, a huge crowd is going out of the cities and their homes to follow Jesus. So the parallel is pretty clear. Passover began their wilderness wanderings as a people, the people of Israel, where God fed the people with bread from heaven. Now here, they're going to get bread from heaven again. Now, one year after the first Passover, the, the actual exodus from Egypt, a year later, they were at the foot of Mount Sinai receiving the law. And they, they celebrate this feast again 
at, at the foot of Mount Sinai, where God speaks to them from the mountain. Here in Galilee, the Jews are going to gather at a mountain again, and again, God will speak. Galilee is in the north, and this says it's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Luke tells us where the other side is, and, and Matthew tells us why they're going there. The other side is the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Here he's also, it's also called the Sea of Tiberias, because John, the Gospel of John, is written to both Jew and Gentile, and they would sometimes call the lake by different names. Um, specifically, they are going to the town of Bethsaida. Now, if you were to flip over and look at the, the last book of your Bibles, the book of Maps, you can see the cities around the town, uh, around the sea, excuse me, of Galilee. And, and if you look around uh, 9 o'clock on the left and go around clockwise, you'll see Tiberias and then Magdala. Magdala is where Mary Magdalene is from. And then you can see Capernaum up near the top. That's where Peter lived. That was kind of the hub of Jesus' ministry. And then behind that, if you go inland a little ways, you'd see Chorazin, which Jesus had some chosen words for. Uh, and then around 12.30, 1 o'clock, you have Beth, uh, Bethsaida. And then after that, there's nothing significant, really. Um, no cities that we hear about in the Gospels until when you're closer to the south part of the lake. So Jesus is going to the end of the road by boat. After Bethsaida, it's just wide open, nothing, wilderness. Behind that, if you go east and north from Bethsaida, there's not a lot of cities there. There's not a lot of roads. Um, that's, what, that's what you learn from the book of Maps. But that's where Jesus is headed, the last town, the end of the road. Luke 9, verse 10, describes the area around Bethsaida as deserted. It was a wilderness. Now, why are they going to Bethsaida if there's really nothing there? Well, Mark chapter 6 tells us that. Mark chapter 6, two really important things have, uh, had happened before this event of the feeding of the 5,000. At the beginning of Mark 6, Jesus had sent out the 12 into full-time ministry, really. It was their first short-term uh, short mission trip, but 20, you know, uh, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, they were sent until they, until they got back. Um, he sent them out two by two without any money. He told them to preach. And Mark chapter 6, it says, So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now this is the first experience of the disciples uh, in, in real ministry. Okay, The second important thing that happened in Mark 6, leading up to the feeding of the 5,000, is um, the, the death of John the Baptist and the news of that death reaching Jesus. Before they head to Bethsaida, Jesus just heard that his cousin had been killed. So picture the mixture there of Jesus and the disciples getting back together, and there's this mixture of excitement and energy and also grief and you know sorrow. The disciples are excited that the demons submit to them. Jesus is mourning because John had died. And this is now sort of a, a peak in their ministry as far as activity goes. You know, there's a lot of preaching happening. There's a lot of healing going on. All sorts of stuff is happen, happening. They're really, really busy. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, it says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. 
for there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. That deserted place is uh, Bethsaida, and they were going there uh, as part of a staff retreat, essentially. Uh, the disciples needed a step back. They, had, they were overworked and underfed. Jesus needed a step back. He knew the value of alone time. Uh, and especially coming at the heels, of a, heels of, a, of a tragedy, like the death of John, he needed time away. And, and that's why they, they crossed the sea to a deserted place. Bethsaida was that deserted place. They needed to debrief the team. They, he needed to ask the disciples, you know, how was it on the, on the mission field? They need time alone. They need time to just slow down and have a meal. And then I'll read the way Mark describes this event, and then we'll go back to the Gospel of John. It says, But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them, and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude, and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like a sheep, not having a shepherd. So now you have the setting. You know, the disciples are thrilled, uh, but also hungry and exhausted. Uh, they need a break. They need a pause. Jesus is weary and sad and compassionate. The crowds are greedy and fickle, as usual, uh, but they're lost, too. You know, they're sh like sheep without a shepherd, and Jesus loves them. Um... And don't forget, this is the first time it's mentioned Jesus trying to take a day off since um, Genesis, right? And he, he tries to go camping, and they find him. Now, contrast that, con con compare and contrast that with how you would feel in this situation, you know, and then with how Jesus responds in this situation. You know, it, it, this is why you can pray at every single moment of the day, because the, the God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, and he, he doesn't need rest. Um, but it's also why you need a day off, and it's why you don't answer work emails on your weekend, you know. Um, but Jesus, in his humanity, he, he knew what it was like to need a break. He needed a break just like you sometimes do. And now he's going to try to take a break and 5,000 families are there at his favorite camping spot waiting for him to serve them. And Jesus loves these people. Jesus uh, has compassion on these people. And he loves the people that are coming to him. And on this, on his one day off, on this staff retreat with his disciples, he's going to turn this into really a practical day of ministry. Hands-on ministry training for his disciples, and he invites them again into his work and says, "This is what ministry is like. This is what ministry is like." And in verse five, it says, "In back, we're back in John, John chapter six, verse five says, then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, "Where shall we buy bread that these may eat?" Which is kind of a funny thing to say, right? Because they're going on a retreat just just them. And it's 13 guys. And they're going out to Bethsaida, the end of the road, into the deserted place. And then he sees 5,000 men and their families and says, Hey, did you, uh, did you, you did the shopping? Did you do enough, uh, shopping for these guys? Did you get enough s'mores? Um, but 
John continues, and he says, But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that everyone may have a little. Now, a few weeks back, I pointed out that in all of the miracles that John mentions, that Jesus does, and there are only seven of them that he really explains thoroughly, Jesus invites other people into his work to participate with him. We're seeing that again right here. Jesus already knew what to do, and you should not be surprised at that, but you might be encouraged. Jesus definitely already knows what to do. But he asks questions to invite someone else into his work. So Jesus sees the crowd of people that are about to interrupt his quiet time, and he asks Philip, Philip, how do you plan on feeding these people lunch or dinner? Now, why would he ask Philip? Well, Philip is from Bethsaida. Uh, we learn that from John chapter 1, verse 44. So maybe Jesus is asking, you know, Philip, you know the area. What's, the, what's a good place for a guy and 5,000 of his closest friends to get a bite to eat? Uh, this is Philip's hometown. So, uh, you know, he, he gets to lead on this one. He chooses Philip to feed a multitude. And, and we know how the story goes, of course. What job does Philip actually have in this chapter? I mean, really, what is Philip's contribution here? We never really see it. And yet, 5,000 5, people are going to have a great meal. And, and I'm pretty sure this passage gives us a better understanding of, you know, the, the Philippians uh, 4.8 verse, I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, a better understanding of that verse than we're usually given. Philip was given a job, and then Jesus did it. That's how we do all things. <laughs> Now, we, we know that the disciples were not interested in feeding these people at all. Matthew chapter 14, verse 5, uh, the disciples tell Jesus, send the multitudes away. And then they kind of polish that up a little bit to sound less unwelcoming. The, they may go into the villages and buy themselves food, as if there's a marketplace in Bethsaida for 5,000 families, right? That, was, that would be very unlikely. But what, what the disciples want is to send them away. They probably want their alone time with Jesus or their alone time with, by themselves. And when Jesus asks Philip how he's going to feed them, Philip gives the answer that really, is really just another way of saying, we can't feed them and we won't feed them. He says 200 denarii isn't enough. A, a denarius, remember, is a single day's wages. So he's just saying that would take way too much money. We don't have that money. We can't afford it crazy idea or funny joke, I'm not sure. And, well, you know, we're, we're sure that we would all act just about the same as Philip. Um, you know, how would, how would you feed the, the crowd of 5,000? I, I don't have any better ideas. But we have to recognize that he's on dangerous ground here, Philip is. Because in Psalm 78, verse 19, it talks about the Israelites uh, in the wilderness begging for food. And it says, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? So that question that the Israelites said, saying like, how can you feed us? How could you prepare a table in the wilderness? Is getting close to what Philip says, which is there's no way we can feed these people ever. God can't do it. Don't say God can't do it. <laughs> now, Jesus asks Philip this question at the front end of this day of ministry. And he lets him think on this all afternoon. See, it's not really clear in John, but there's, there's a lot that happens between this verse and the next. 
In John, it specifically mentions that Jesus had this conversation with Philip as he saw the crowds coming. It was at the beginning of their exchange. But they didn't all just show up and have lunch. Luke chapter 9, verse 11 says that Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. It was a full day of ministry. There was teaching, and there was preaching, and there was healing and ministry. Then, in Luke, it says, when the day began to wear away, that's when the feeding of the 5,000 actually happens. So the crowd is coming up the hill, or you know, down to the shore when they're rolling up. I don't know exactly how it worked. And they found Jesus, even though he was hiding. And, uh, and Jesus says to Philip, how are you going to feed them? And Philip says, can't, but he's, he's got to be pondering this for the rest of the day, for the next several hours. Then the disciples say, near the end of the day, send them away, have them buy their own food. It's getting late. And then Jesus says, again, you give them something to eat. That's Luke chapter 9, verse 13. And that's where we come to the next section in John. So I'm imagining Philip in the midst of this afternoon of ministry, going back in his mind, thinking, okay, Jesus was asking about feeding these people, but he didn't really mean it, right? Like, I'm, I'm doing the right thing just listening to Jesus right now and not act... Like, he wasn't being literal, was he? And then evening comes and it's dinner time and he says it again. Get, feed them. Go ahead and feed these people. And the question is posed again, or really, not really a question, it's really an order. You give them something to eat. And instead of saying, what we might have would, uh, you know, never be enough, you know, uh, someone comes and says, here's what we do have. And this is the right thing. And, and then they ask, what can you do with it? So look at verse 8. This is what I'm talking about. This will become clear. Well, actually, uh, yeah, verse 8. We'll read verse 8. It says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him that there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Um, so again, the, the faith is weak, but remember, it only takes a mustard seed. Now, as an interesting detail, Andrew and Philip are buddies. Okay, they're usually together. If you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that Andrew and Philip show up in the same stories at the same time. Um, they're usually together. When Jesus sent the 12 out on mission, two by two, these guys were probably paired up. When Philip is learning that he can do all things through Christ, uh, you know, he's learning right now that he can do all things only because the guy next to him is a little bit smarter than him and has a little bit more faith than him. Sometimes that's how Jesus gets you to where you're going. Praise the Lord for the person sitting next to you. Uh, so now Andrew says, I found a kid who has some food. It's what we have. I really don't think it's enough, but again, it's all we have. And once again, we see Jesus who could make fish, create fish, ex nihilo, out of thin air, right? Who could just whistle and have a fish walk up the hill from the Sea of Galilee. You know, he could literally have manna from heaven again. He chooses instead to include a child and a child's lunch, and the child's generosity. Now, actually, it doesn't say here that the child is generous at all. Um, and since we know that the disciples can be rude to kids, they, they've done it before, uh, I guess it's possible that Andrew was just going to be a big bully about it. But I'd rather not consider that. I would rather think of the boy being generous and giving his lunch to Jesus. Works better on the flannel graph. And... He's just a kid. This, the, the word lad here, it's a double diminutive. It's like saying small child or little boy. And, and what he has to offer is next to nothing. 
Uh, it even mentions that the fish are small, which is really an insult to the fine Galilean angler who caught them, I'm sure. But it tells you that they were small fish and barley loaves. Barley is what you use when you can't afford a better grain. It's coarse, it's cheap, not good. But this is just his lunch. And this boy certainly didn't count heads. He didn't think in his mind, watch this, give Jesus a fish and he can turn it into a feast. He's going to do a trick. Uh, there's no, you know, there was no context, no precedent for multiplication of baked goods. The, this child was not expecting or, or ordering a miracle. He was just giving his lunch. Because there's Jesus. Why wouldn't you give him your lunch? And there's no formula here in the mind of a child. There's no give and take. The, the boy surely wasn't thinking, I give you this and then you do the thing I want you to do. That's, that's not how this little kid is going to think. There's no expectation of some big miracle and get him getting his name in, in the Bible or something. You know, it, there's just generosity. And, and the boy just gives Jesus his meal. Because, you know, in this huge crowd who didn't have a meal? Jesus. So the boy gives Jesus his meal. Now, every service you offer to the Lord will be like this boy's lunch in many ways. First, what you have to offer will always be next to nothing. Just don't think of it, of yourself or your gifts as more, you know, more highly than you ought. What you have to offer on a grand scale, on an eternal scale, is next to nothing. But in another way, the second way you're offering to the Lord, your service to the Lord is, is similar to this boy's lunch, is that what you offer to the Lord is all you have. It's everything. Nowhere in the flannel graph do you see the felt piece of the boy holding the fish, the extra sardines behind his back. This was his whole lunch. This was his widow's might. And then the, the last way that your service is, is like this boy's offering is that your service ultimately, isn't for people. It's for Jesus. He gives it, he gives it to people. The Lord blesses people. Now, this is important, and it's forgotten, but it's why Jesus says regarding feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and visiting the prisoner, what you did for the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. When you serve, you serve Jesus. He serves people. What you have to offer people is nothing until you've offered it. To Christ. But what you have will become useful when offered to the Lord. Many times we see Jesus and his spirit as a means to an end. This is a mistake. Even in the work of the ministry, we think, God, give me your power so that I can do the thing, so that the job can get done. And I believe it's far more effective to say, Jesus, here's what I got. This is all I have. It's not much, but it's yours. And I think that's what the boy said. I think that's what he was doing. And I think that's what Andrew was saying, too, in his own way, saying, this isn't much, but it's all we can find. So Jesus accepts what they have, and he uses it. Now, verse 10 says, Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about 5,000. Now, it specifies men. That's how you would count a crowd. You'd count the men and then just guess at the women and children, which is what we have to do here. 5,000 men. Now, even if there's only two other people in each family, that's 15,000 people. Um, I don't know if that's a reasonable guess or not, but it's, it's maybe in that neighborhood. And Jesus has them sit down. Now, we're go not going to 
you know, send them through the cafeteria line. This is a sit-down restaurant. In Mark chapter 6, we saw that Jesus saw them. He saw this crowd as, as sheep without a shepherd. John mentions the grass. He says there was a bunch of grass there. And Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And that's what the shepherd is doing right here. In verse 11, it says, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. This is the verse where the miracle happens. Once the belonging of a small boy became the belongings of Jesus Christ, they became useful beyond anything that the boy or the disciples or the crowd could imagine. The five loaves and two fish don't run out. They are miraculously multiplied, and thousands upon thousands of people eat their fill. It's a miracle. And we don't want to try and fit this into a formula. I don't think you can do this, do a class, you know, on how, how to do miracles. Follow step A, B, and then C. And, you know, but we can see an important ingredient in this miracle. And that is the, the primacy, the importance of thanksgiving. The first thing Jesus does is give thanks for the food. Now, of course, this was probably seen as a ritual, a habit. He just prayed for the food. That's something everyone was used, used to seeing, you know, and it's something normal. But consider how strange this is. Because, you know, Jesus, doing this very publicly, everyone is sitting down. Jesus takes the barley loaves and the fish, and he thanks God for them. They know, and people are probably chuckling at this point. It's like, he's thanking God for the meal. But we can see the meal is just a handful. Like, does, is this a joke? But he thanks God. And he's thanking God publicly for what is clearly not enough. He thanks God for what will not do the job. But he gives thanks. And, and he knew that in the giving of thanks, he will multiply the loaves. Remember a few weeks ago, our first Sunday back uh, at Town Hall, we... Um, we looked at Ezra and Zechariah, and God speaks in Zechariah. He says, who dares to despise the day of small things? And I guarantee that some of the disciples and probably the people in the crowd were despising the small fishes, rolling their eyes, laughing under their breath. And Jesus gives thanks for these small things. Charles Spurgeon, as usual, he had a, a beautiful observation about this prayer of thanks. He points out that Jesus is thankful not just for the fish, but for what the fish would become. He says, For five little cakes and two fish, Christ gave thanks to the Father. Apparently a meager cause for praise, but Jesus knew what he could make of them, and therefore gave thanks for what they would presently accomplish. Christ gave thanks for these trifles because he saw whereunto they would grow. St. Augustine echoes this when he says, God loves us for what we are becoming. He sees potential where no one else can. Now, after giving thanks, Jesus distributes the meal. He gives the food to the disciples, and then they give it to the crowds. This is, is still the way Christ desires to bless the world. He wants to bless the world by giving to his children, and he wants his children to then bless others. Now, the bread that we have to give, we'll talk about this later in chapter 6, Jesus says he is the bread of life. Okay, But the, the only way that the world doesn't get fed, 
The only way that the world doesn't get blessed with that bread is if the disciples get stingy. We know the problem wasn't with his supply. He can have bread and fish keep coming for all eternity. We know there's no problem with the generosity of Christ or his willingness. On this day, the giving flowed as God intended and everyone had their fill. But it goes from God to his people, to his disciples, to the crowds. Now notice that Philip's imagination, you know, back in what it was at verse 7, when he was trying to figure out how to feed these people, he only ever reached the point where he could say everyone would get a little. Except they wouldn't even get a little. 200 denarii wouldn't be enough if everyone only had a little. But Jesus gives until everyone is full, as much as they wanted, and then there's leftovers. Jesus gives with extravagance. And you know what this means. When it says that everyone had their fill, it meant that little boy did too. He got as much of that lunch as he wanted. The one who gave everything got back as much as he wanted. They, this, the one who gave his lunch got more lunch, more lunch than he brought. Who else? The disciples, the ones who wanted to send the crowd away, the ones who had been so busy they couldn't even get a bite to eat. That had been their ministry for the past several days, maybe weeks. And then now they're back and, and they got to eat as much as they wanted. The, one, the disciples had said, send them away to get food, but instead they went to work on their day off to bless those who were hungry for Jesus and then they got food too, more than they could handle. Verse 12 says, So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Jesus is generous, but he's never wasteful. And verse 13 says, Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Hey, would you look at that? Twelve baskets. Hmm. Twelve disciples. The worker is worthy of his wages. Jesus brought his men into ministry with him at, at somewhat of a low moment. Remember how, uh, you know, it, it had said that they were so busy that they didn't have time to eat. So how appropriate now that Jesus had brought them into this project where they could, would be feeding others. He does not use people according to their ability. That's Marxism, I'm pretty sure. Okay? He uses people according to their lack. The disciples couldn't eat. Well, then feed people. <laughs> In our midweek Bible study a few weeks ago, we saw King David after the death of his son Absalom. And he was grieved, deeply grieved. And he was advised to go and comfort his men, his soldiers, who had been to battle. The one who needed comfort was told to go comfort. And sometimes, oftentimes, God does call you in a state of emptiness and lack to go and minister in that same vein, that same place where you're, you're lacking. The widow's might, again, is an example, is a model. She is blessed and remembered because she gave out of her poverty. In a way, the disciples offering the boys lunch was a gesture from poverty. This is all we have. But it's all we have. It's everything we have. Ministry happens with the supplies at the bottom of the barrel. But Jesus fills barrels, or in this case, baskets. The disciples are given bread and fish pressed down, shaken, and overflowing, which sounds like a really gross smoothie, but don't overthink it. And let's finish up here. 
We'll take a look at how this whole thing was perceived by the people in the crowd. Verse 14 says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the, the world. And then in verse 15, which we'll start with next week, it mentions that they, they wanted to force him and make him king. But they perceive, before the, the politics gets involved, they see this is the prophet. Signs point somewhere. The similarities between Jesus and Moses were evident. Moses was the leader of the people, bringing them into the wilderness and then feeding them miraculously. Moses was their leader. Well, now this is a new leader, a new kind of leader, a new prophet. Notice that it says this is the prophet, not a prophet. And many Jews then believed in a two-part Messiah, two Messiahs, really. So they, they, have, uh, they had asked John the Baptist, remember in chapter 1, are you the Christ? He says, no. They said, well then, are you the prophet? He says, no. You know, God had promised through Moses that he would raise up from among them, from among their brethren, a prophet who they would hear. That's the prophet, the one better than Moses. And that's who these people are saying Jesus is. Now, unfortunately, this great confession of faith actually leads these people in the wrong direction. Uh, they're going to try and take Jesus by force, which is not the way you deal with God under any circumstances, and make him king. We'll, we'll begin with that next week. And these people, the crowds, uh, are criticized in the Gospels. They don't really follow Jesus for the right reasons. They follow him for the food. And this is why Jesus, later in the chapter, will clarify, I'm the bread. I am the bread of life. And we always need to be checking our hearts here, making sure that we're pursuing Jesus for himself and not just his stuff. We need to be sure that we are feeding our souls on Jesus and not just his gifts. And when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the bread, we will see him as both the most satisfying thing and also the most essential thing for our survival. When we see Jesus as the most satisfying and the most essential thing for our souls, then we won't hesitate to give him our lunch. And then everything else we own. We won't doubt that he will provide in every wilderness. And there's a reason why this story shows up in the flannel graph, I think. There's a reason why this story takes place in all four Gospels. The lesson of our lack being met by his infinite provision, that is a lesson that is essential to the Gospel. We have nothing, but he wants it all. He has everything and is willing to share. And with, with our nothingness freely given, He can bless more people than you can imagine. So I, I, I pray that we as a church, that, that you as a Christian listening to this, would have a renewed desire to offer God what you have, trusting Him to put it to his good uses, knowing that Jesus himself, the bread of life, is what will most satisfy and most sufficiently sustain our souls through any season. That's what I would pray. Lord Jesus, your word is good. You are good to give it to us. I pray that these things, these truths that we see in your word, would sink down into the hearts of your people and make the body of Christ, the church, more resemble our head. Jesus, we look to you, we trust you, we follow you, we pray that you would be shaping us into the image of, of yourself. Make us look like Jesus. Let us be generous 
like we see generosity play in this chapter. Let us have faith to see great things like we see in this chapter. Lord, we, we hope for you, we have faith in you, and we love you. We pray increase these things in us, in Jesus' name. Amen.